This morning we'll look at John 8, verses 21 through 30. And as you're turning there, um, I want to ask you to uh, pray for me every week if you could as I put the message together, in addition to the church as well. Uh, it really is a partnership. And we know from Ephesians 6 that... Uh, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, uh, which goes forth as God's people pray. Uh, so I love putting the message together, seeing what God does on Sunday. And you can pray throughout the week and see how God answers your prayers, and He really does. Um, this last Thursday, I believe it was, I went home and Michelle said, um, how was your study? I said, oh, it was great. I, I saw things in the passage I never saw before. And she said, oh, good, I was praying for you. And I told the kids, Dad's working on the message. We need to pray for him. And I said, I knew somebody was praying for me. And I intentionally thought to myself, somebody is praying for me. Um, so please, uh, let's covenant together. Let's join together and, and see what God does. He really does work in incredible ways. John eight twenty one. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, again, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you that you have not left us in the darkness. Uh, Father, thank You for the Holy Spirit who gives us illumination, who gives us understanding of the passage. But Father, we don't merely pray for understanding. We also pray that You would give us hearts that long to walk in the light. Give us hearts that love the truth, that want to live according to the truth. Father, may our hearts grieve when we don't walk according to the truth. And Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would give us great understanding so that our lives would be changed, so that we would reflect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just a little bit more. And we pray these things confidently in His name. Amen. You may be seated. A while back, Warren Wiersbe lamented that there are not many prophets today. He went on to say, the church is indeed a Non-profits organization. (laughs) He said, most people don't want a prophet around because a prophet makes them feel 
uncomfortable. A prophet weeps while others are laughing. While the complacent are monitoring religious conformity, the prophet is busy tearing down so he can build up and rooting out so he can plant. While the popular leaders bend with the wind, the prophet stands as firm as a wall so he can lead the nation forward. Of course, our culture has some choice words for those with such a resolute stand. Words such as intolerant, bigoted, self-righteous, arrogant, and on and on the list goes. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was beaten and put in the stocks for his prophesying. And the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, lost his head for daring to speak out against King Herod, the Tetrarch, and his sin. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we have this transition from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament prophet, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and following. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, the prophet to come. I want to talk about Jesus Christ being a prophet this morning. Uh, you may recall from our catechism questions that Jesus Christ fulfills how many Old Testament offices? Anybody remember? Say a little, with a little more conviction. Three. Three. That's right. All of them. Yeah. That's our secretary. She's sharp. She knows how to get around these things. <laughs> And that would be the office of prophet, priest, and king. That's right. Prophet, priest, and king. And in John 8, 21 to 30, John is going to highlight the prophetic office of Christ. And specifically, we'll see that highlighted by seeing the two functions of a prophet. First of all, we have that of foretelling. Not foretelling, we'll get to that in a minute, but foretelling. In other words, God would give them a message and then that prophet would foretell that message that God had given them. Unfortunately, for the prophet, that message often was negative. It often included that of judgment. It didn't always fall under the rubric of positive and encouraging news that you will enjoy hearing. Um, Jonah is a good example. His message was this. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. Hardly positive for the Ninevites and hardly encouraging. Nevertheless, you'll recall that God used that negative message of gloom and doom to bring about national repentance and revival. And isn't it interesting that everybody longs for revival. We pray that God would send a revival to America. But how many love to preach about judgments and the need to repent so that God can bring revival? It's one thing to speak about revival. It's one thing to speak about the need to repent. And you'll recall that God used Jonathan Edwards to bring about the first great awakening. And does anybody recall 
the one message, the singular message that he used from Jonathan Edwards to bring about that revival. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And his text was Deuteronomy 32.25, which talked about the foot of the wicked suddenly slipping and falling down into judgment. That was the message. And today, that message by Jonathan Edwards is mocked and scorned up one side and down the other. But that was the message that God used to bring about the Great Awakening. A message about the seriousness of sin and the judgment that comes about because of that sin. All prophets were foretellers. Many prophets, although not all prophets, were also foretellers. In other words, they would predict, not like me predicting who's going to be in the Super Bowl, but they would predict with utter certainty what God is going to do in the future. And sometimes that included the invasion of a coming enemy. God would say the Babylonians are going to come against you because of your sin. Uh, At other times, they would prophesy about the coming Messiah and they would describe the coming Messiah and what He would do. As I said, our text is about Jesus as a prophet. And in verses 21 to 26, we're going to see Jesus as the forth-telling prophet. He has a message from God, and it's a message of judgment. And then in verses 28 to 29, we will see Jesus as a prophet foretelling. He's going to talk about what is going to happen in the not-so-distant future. Let's begin with Jesus foretelling. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I think his going away here has reference to his ascension into heaven. Eventually he's going away. They will not be able to find him any longer but he will be gone. And you'll notice that right in the middle of that reference, we have the statement, you will die in your sin. That statement is loaded with theological meaning and the religious leaders would not have missed that meaning. Uh, In my Bible, there's a cross-reference to this verse that leads to Ezekiel 3.18 and or excuse me, 33.8. Turn to those if you like. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. That's kind of my quick guide. Jesus is speaking as a prophet. And there is a clear reference to Ezekiel here. He sounds just like the New Testament Ezekiel in speaking out against these people. Ezekiel 3. Let me read 17 to 19. And this is the Lord speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. That's the analogy he uses, that of a watchman. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give them no warning? No, speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. 
That wicked person shall surely die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If God says, Prophet Ezekiel, you warn these people, coming judgments. And if you don't say anything because you don't want to be offensive, because you don't want to be called a bigoted or intolerant, these people are going to die because of their sin. But their blood will be all over your hands. He goes on to say, But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. That's pretty serious. Prophet understood he was God's watchman and he must warn the people. He must tell them what their wickedness will lead to. Otherwise, their blood will be on the hands of the prophets. And that's Jesus here. He's telling them, you are going to die in your sin. And they understood exactly what that meant. That meant that they were rebelling against God. They were walking in wickedness and judgment was coming upon them. And prophet Jesus says, I'm going away. You're going to die in your sin. I'm warning you that judgment is coming because of your sin. Very sobering for pastors today who speak for God. We must give the whole counsel of God. We are God's watchmen. We have to stand before the people of God and tell them what is happening. Paul understood this theme very well. And just one other passage from Acts 20. This is very important. This is what we read in Acts 20, 26 and 27. He says at the end of his ministry to the Ephesians, he says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all you. Why is he innocent of their blood? He tells them, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am clear of your blood because like a true prophet, I have told you the whole counsel of God. The counsel that you enjoyed hearing and the counsel that you did enjoy hearing. That which was positive and encouraging and that which was negative and discouraging. And Jesus is doing the same thing in this passage. He is speaking out about their sin and the consequences. And he can wash his hands. He can say, I'm innocent of your blood. I told you what is going to come. Jesus is the prophet, the watchman par excellence. Now you'll notice he says, you're going to die in your sin. Everyone in this room is going to die. And you and I are going to die in one of two ways. We will either die in our sin or we will die in faith. There are no other ways to die. And I'll come back to that faith in just a minute. Notice the response. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going? You cannot come. Notice first of all, that they completely ignore his warning about dying in their sin. It's completely ignore that. And they say, will he kill himself? In other words, they're saying, is he going to commit suicide? Our Kent Hughes says, this was a wicked, sarcastic jab. The Jews believe that suicide caused a person to occupy the worst place in hell. And then he quotes Josephus, the Jewish historian, who said, the souls of those whose hands have done violence to their own lives 
Go to the darkest Hades, and God, their father, will visit the sins of the evildoers on their descendants. In essence, they were saying, he says we cannot follow him. He must be going to hell then. And he's right. We won't be following him there. Very strong words that they have here for Jesus. Jesus responds, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Two different realms. They belong to the world and the world represents rebellion against God. The world that John says earlier did not receive the coming of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says in 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Notice that He doesn't let them off the hook. They ignore His warning, but He is going to bring it up again. And He's not going to just mention it once, but He's going to mention it twice. Because he wants them to know judgment is coming. And again, this is what a prophet does. Because he loves people and he wants them to know, if you don't turn away, you're going to die in your sins. So he warns them. Also notice that sandwich in between these two warnings about dying in your sin is the gospel in a nutshell. What does he say? Unless, this is their only hope, unless you believe, and here's where I have to get a little technical, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That is their only hope. In the Greek, it's ego, a me. I am, I am. It's what we find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where God reveals Himself to Noah at the burning bush and He says, this is My name, I am. Jesus picks up on that in John. He says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, you'll notice, depending on your translation, some say, I am He. If you have the NASB, it has He in italics. That means it's added. If you have the NIV, it says, I am, and then there's little brackets underneath, and it says, unless you believe I am the one I claim to be. They add that because they think that clarifies the meaning. I don't think it needs clarification. I think Jesus is not just saying, I am He, the promised Messiah who was talked about in the Old Testament. I believe He's saying, I am. Unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that Jesus is Jehovah, you will die in your sin. And I think that fits the context perfectly. What did He just say in verse 23? You are from below. I am from where? Above. See, he's not talking about being a son of Abraham or David, of which he was. But he's talking about his origin from heaven. And he draws attention to that. He says, I'm from above. That's radical. They understood exactly what he was saying. And then notice what he says in verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And then verse 27, they did not understand that He had been speaking about the Father. He talks about being sent from the Father to earth. And then in 8.58, that everybody agrees with, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, a me. Same translation. 
right in the context. I am. And I believe this fits John's broader context because whereas Matthew and Luke talk about the origin of Jesus coming from Abraham or David or being born of a virgin Mary, John doesn't talk about that. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John's Christmas story is found in John 1.14, where he says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John's emphasis is that the Word who was God became flesh. That's his focus. God, from all eternity, takes on flesh and blood. So it perfectly fits the context. And Jesus will come to this theme again. John 13. If you turn ahead. 13, 18. He's talking to His disciples. And He's talking about the one disciple who's going to betray Him. 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that ego a me. I am. He's telling them ahead of time that Judas is going to be the betrayer so that when it happens, they will believe. Not just that he's a generic prophet, but that they will believe that he is I am God in the flesh. And then I'll let you read down the passage a little later, but they ask him, who, Lord? And then he says, the one who dips my bread. And in 26, he gives it to Judas, making it clear that he's talking about Judas, the betrayer. And he tells them ahead of time. He prophesies ahead of time so that when it does happen, the disciples will believe that Jesus Christ is the great I am. And, of course, prophesying and telling people what was going to happen ahead of time was one of the signs, one of the proofs, if you will, of being God. Turn to Isaiah, if you will. Isaiah especially brings this out. Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 21. This is a fascinating passage. Here we have the Lord speaking to the idols. Idols that the Israelites are bowing down. But He directly addresses the idols. He says, Set forth your case. This is the Lord speaking to the idols. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. You say, well, what are the proofs? 22. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. See what God is saying to the idols? Set forth your proofs that you're really God, that you're worthy of our worship, our bowing down for. Bring your proofs. And what would be the proof that these idols are really God's? They would tell the people ahead of time before it happens what's going to take place. They would say, well, I'll tell you who's going to play in the Super Bowl before the season begins, which two teams, I'll tell you what the score is going to be, and I'll tell you who's going to win the game and how they're going to win it. That would be proof 
that they are speaking for God or they are God. And this theme comes out again and again. Turn ahead to 42, 8 and 9 in Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And I could turn to other passages as well, but I think you get the point. There is no other God, and God basically says, I can prove it because I can bring forth the proofs. I'm going to tell you right now what's going to happen before it ever takes place, and that will be proof positive that I am God. And Jesus does the same thing. That's what He did with Judas. He tells him ahead of time. This is what's going to happen. And I'm telling you what's going to happen so that you will know that I am. Only God can tell us with certainty what's going to happen in the future. And the prophet warns the people. He tells them twice in 24, you're going to die in your sin. You're going to die in your sins unless you believe that I am. That is their only hope. What's their response? So they said to him, Who are you? I think that's just complete evasion. I think they're getting a hint of what Jesus is saying when he says, Unless you believe that I am. And by asking, Who are you? I think what they're really trying to do is give Jesus a little more rope. Uh, Go on. Tell us who you are. Tell us a little more about this being the I am. Tell us a little more about your deity. Because we're going to accuse you of blasphemy. We're going to arrest you. We're going to put you to death. Go ahead. Keep talking like that. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Go ahead. Tell us a little more about how you, a mere man, are the great I am. Jesus answers, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. And then 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. How could that be? I, I read that. They couldn't understand that he was talking about the Father. I'm thinking, how, how could they have possibly missed that? Earlier, he was very clear. This is what we read in John 5. When he was working on the Sabbath, 5.16, we read, And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. 5.17 But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. (laughs) This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. They knew earlier exactly what he was doing. He was calling God his Father. And he just got done saying, I am from above. So we wonder, how could he, how could they have missed it? So clear. This, this is what I think is happening. I could be wrong, but this is what I think is happening. John 12. I think it spells it out. John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, so many miracles, one miracle after another, though he had done so many, they still did not or would not believe in him. 
Even though they saw all the signs that pointed to the fact that he is God's son. He's telling the truth. He is the Messiah. He is our only hope of deliverance from our sins. They still would not believe. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Notice how they move from would not believe to could not believe. They would not believe because of their sin. So God says, good. You want it? I'm going to bring you judgment. I'm going to make it so that you cannot believe. And then notice this. Isaiah once again. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Is that not sobering? The evidence is laid out before them. They refuse to believe. And God says, you don't want to believe? I'm going to bring judicial blindness upon you. I'm going to blind your eyes. I'm going to harden your hearts. And I'm going to make it so that you cannot believe, so that you cannot turn and be healed. That's frightening. That's frightening. Basically, that means their eternal damnation is being sealed. That is scary. That's Jesus, the foreteller. Or, excuse me, fourth teller. Now, we see Jesus, the foreteller, telling what is going to happen in the future. 28, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. That's how it reads literally in the Greek once again. So the question is, when will they know that Jesus is the great I Am? And the answer is, when they crucify Him. The cross will reveal, notice, with utter certainty, the cross will reveal with certainty that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. They are going to see it. And this is what I never saw before. We basically have right here two prophecies. Notice, first of all, what he says. Jesus said to them, when you, he's talking to them, pointing the finger, if you will, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, what is he saying by lifted up? Lifted up is not lifting up the Lord in praise. Okay, they're not going to lift him up. It's not lifting him up to heaven for the ascension. They will not lift him up to heaven. This is a reference to, cro- to the cross. And he's saying when you had lifted up the Son of Man, when you kill the Son of Man, which means Jesus is being very clear, you're going to have me killed. Not just any day. You're going to have me crucified, being lifted up. He's talking about being lifted up on a cross. He says, when you have me crucified. So he's prophesying that they are going to kill him. Here's the second prophecy. When you do that, then you will know. This doesn't mean conversion necessarily. Then you will know that I am. You will know that I am. God And I think I can support that translation of I am once again. Turn to Luke 23, or back, Luke 23. I want you to notice the response of Jesus 
at his very point of death. And I don't, I don't know how I overlooked it all these years. It's one of those things, you ever do that? You're reading the Bible and something hits you like, how did I not see that? That's what I was telling. Like, how did I not see that? Luke 23, 46. Jesus is on the cross. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are his last words on the cross. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died. And then notice this. Now, when the centurion, notice that, not just a centurion, the centurion, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, surely this was an innocent man. He watches Jesus die. His conclusion is this man was innocent. He should never have died because he wasn't guilty. Now, keep your finger right there in Luke 24 and turn back to Mark 15. 15:39 Mark 15:39 And when the centurion knows there he is once again who stood facing him this is talking about Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last. Notice, once again, it's talking about when he saw that he died in this way on the cross, he said, truly this man was what? The Son of God. Not just innocent, this man was the Son of God. And what convinces him of that? By the very way in which he dies on the cross. That was his conclusion. You say, but that was just man. One man, the centurion. What about the crowds? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Let's look at the crowds. Let's turn back to Matthew 27. Still keeping your finger in Luke 24. I haven't forgot about that. Matthew 27. I'm going to begin at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised. At the death of Christ, there was an earthquake. Rocks split. Tombs came open. Dead people, dead saints came alive, went out into the city. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Verse 54, when the centurion, there he is again, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. Terrible translation. Literally, this is, they were exceedingly fearful. The Greek word is phobias. We get the word Phobia. Many translations are better. I know some translations have terrified. That's a better translation. They were absolutely terrified. They were scared to death. And they said, not the centurion this time, but now the crowds. What do the crowds say? They say, truly this was the Son of God. 
That's the conclusion that the crowds come to now because they're watching Jesus and the manner in which he died. That's their conclusion. Now turn back to Luke 24. 24:48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place talking about his death returned home how beating their breasts not in silent relief finally we won't have to worry about him anymore not with shouts of victory we've defeated him we put him to death they returned home all the crowds beating their breasts why Because they saw the way in which He died and they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt this was the Son of God. What were they saying? What have we done? We have killed the author of life. We have murdered the Messiah. Oh my, what have we done? And they're beating their breasts because they are overwhelmed with waves of guilt because they know because the prophecy of Christ came true they would know when they killed him that he is the I am they know it they know it because they saw how he died there's no other explanation not just the centurion the whole crowd left beating their breasts because of what they have just done the worst crime that has ever will ever take place in the history of mankind. And they have to live with that guilt for the rest of their lives. Sometimes I think about murderers. And we, and we don't find out who murdered you know, some little girl who was taken and, and raped and killed. And we think, oh no, they got away with it. And I think, they didn't get away with it. They will live with the guilt of that for the rest of their lives. But the guilt for that type of murder doesn't even compare with the guilt of knowing that you have killed the very Son of God. They knew it. The Pharisees knew it. Even later when they cover it up, they know what they're doing and they have to live with that guilt. And they will die in that guilt. They will die in their sins. And I think Paul, or the apostles, not just Paul, but the apostles, know about that guilt. And that's why when you turn to Acts, he tells them about what they have done. Acts 2.22. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says, Men of Israel. He's addressing the men. He says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know. You saw them. They knew about the signs. He says, you yourselves know. This Jesus, God delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, this was all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption to bring about the saving of souls. And then he goes on to say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
He lays it on him. You killed him. You're responsible for his death. And he does that intentionally because he knows they feel guilt. And he wants to put his finger on that guilt, that sore spot, so that they will repent. So that they will ask for forgiveness for doing such a heinous thing. This comes out again. 3.15. We see it again. And you killed the author of life. Isn't that interesting? You killed the author of life. And then in 4.10, we see it again. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. God raised from the dead. Why do they do this? They knew that they're responsible for his death, that they had guilt. And this is how you help someone overcome guilt. You don't help someone overcome guilt by ignoring it. You help someone overcome guilt by pointing out what they did wrong. We, we do this with our children. They do something wrong. They feel bad. The best thing we can do to help them alleviate that guilt is say, now what did you do? That wasn't right, was it? And when they say, no, it wasn't right, you need to ask for forgiveness. And when they ask for forgiveness, then you can say, you're forgiven. And they can be set free from that. So don't think about this finger pointing. You've killed the author of life as a mean thing. This is a gracious thing. They feel guilt. They need to feel the weight of that guilt. I often say this in our confession time. Lord, may we feel the weight of our guilt. And then because we feel the weight of our guilt, we confess, Lord, what have I done? I've sinned against you. And then I often pray, and Lord, may we feel that guilt being lifted because you have set us free. So the apostles put their finger on that guilt. You're responsible so that they will own up to it, ask for forgiveness, and they can be set free from the murder of the Messiah. It's their only hope. Many of them did not repent. They lived with that guilt for the rest of their lives. Many people died terrible guilt. But some did believe. It's interesting in the passage that it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. That sounds encouraging, but I'm afraid it's going to get a little discouraging when we Look at what follows next week. <laughs> but many do believe. But that's the only hope. Everyone will die in their sins unless they believe that Jesus is the I Am. God in the flesh who died on the cross atoning for their sins. If people don't turn to that, they will die in their sins instead of dying in faith. And those are the only two options. And I pray that God opens the eyes of all of us and we see Jesus Christ is our only hope. He is our only hope. The Gospel is so simple. Believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And you will have everlasting life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the death of Christ. Father, the worst event that has ever taken place in the history of mankind has been transformed by you into good news. 
good news for those who believe, for those with faith. Father, I pray that we would all look to Jesus Christ. May we see that He is the Son of God. May he, we see that He is the Savior of mankind, the promised Messiah. And may we live in faith and may we die in faith. I shudder to think of anybody dying outside of this faith. Father, be gracious and merciful. Open our blind eyes so that we can see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.